I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So, Joseph, the fried eggs own Andy Johnson won the media lottery at the Masters because some people just have all the luck. And he is playing Augusta National today. What do you think he will shoot? It's a good question. I believe he's playing with persimmon drivers. Um, it does. <laughs> yes. Before I answer that, Gary, am I correct that he also won a fried egg event recently? Is that true? I, I, I think I feel like he's won multiple fried egg events. I was going to say, between a win at a fried egg event and winning the Masters lottery, things are starting to stink maybe a little bit at at the (laughs) fried egg. So I don't know how how corrupt things have gotten, but just seeing his name pulled, it raises some questions. Persimmon Driver, and they're playing the championship tees. I think Andy, I haven't looked at the forecast today. I've been more checking it for the tournament days. I should have been checking it for media day. I'm going to go with, this is a hard question. Persimmon driver, long Persimmon course. driver, PT three wood that he yeah. bombs, by the way. Like that carries farther than the driver, but the driver gets run out. You know, he hits kind of this knuckle cut with the driver, yeah. uh, sort of low. The PT is a high, you know, sort of straight ball that he hits. And then he has Wilson Staff 70s, I believe, era irons, gooseneck. And that's his, that's the setup he's going with. Look, I'll give Andy his flowers. I played around with him in the fall at Essex County Club and he shot a bogey free 66 with a persimmon <laughs> driver. I'll say 83, 83 at Augusta. 83. Okay. Yeah. What I you, mean, what do you think? I think he might not keep score. Uh, that's sort oh, of that's a cop funny. out though. Um, I would, I would say, I'm not sure what his form has been like lately, but maybe he'll break 80. I think I'll go with 79 just to take the under on yours and we'll see we'll see how it turns out i'll, so I'll get beat, in touch with him he's gonna beat jason day he's gonna beat jason day well they're playing i believe they play from the members tees so yeah they, then you know if they were playing from the championship tees then that would be one thing but from the member tees i feel like the courses you know i mean it could be gettable but the greens are going to be really really tough and so, but yeah, you never know with Andy. Sometimes he goes super low, obviously a good player. I was just joking earlier about him winning Friday events. I'm not sure that he's won one. He may have won the one at Lake Merced recently, but also, you know, who else has won Friday events, Cameron Hurtis and Will Knights. And so honestly, the, the corruption sort of has eaten its way through the entire company. Fair <laughs> enough. I, I actually, I thought he was playing the championship tees. If it's member tees, I'll go with like 80. Okay. Okay. I think we're, we're converging around the same yeah. number. I feel like that's probably a good guess there. You are listening to the fried egg podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. That is Joseph Lamagna. And this episode is of course a master's recap. We're not going to be talking about Andy Johnson's golf, uh, very much more during it. We're going to bring on Shane Bacon a little later to answer some of your mailbag questions. But first Joseph and I will cover the headline stories, which include John Rahm versus Brooks Kepka, first and foremost. Rahm is the best player in golf right now. I think most people agree with that. And Kepka is the best major championship player of the past decade or so. 
So it's very exciting to see these two go head to head. Rom came out on top shooting a final round 69. Do I have that right? 69 to win by four shots. I probably should have looked that up. He shot uh, for he sure. Shot 69 before. to finish to win by four shots. You're good. 69 to win by four shots. I've got my facts straight. So that's John Rom. He is a master's winner. That's his second career major. Now, Joseph, in the past, you've said that Rom has a tendency to be over aggressive strategically, whereas Kepka, at least in majors, is very patient and smart. From what you saw this week, do you think Rom has turned a corner and become more like major championship Kepka in his strategic approach? Uh, maybe. I don't. I think not necessarily. But part of the beauty of Augusta to me is that you don't have to be conservative everywhere. There's such a, a good blend of aggressive shots and conservative shots. So I don't necessarily take huge issue with like John Rahm's course management in general. I think he can get over aggressive, and he's had those moments like at the Players Championship, um, some other moments like even at Bay Hill. Just I'd probably advise him playing the course a little bit differently, but. Uh, like an example would be the approach on six at Augusta, right? When that pins up on the top right there, that's not a concert. That's not a shot you you need to hit a conservative approach into. It would just if you hit it into the center of the green, it would end up all the way at the bottom. So yes. I think Augusta is great in the way that it rewards both aggressive and conservative play, depending on the pin locations. And John Rom did a really good job handling all of that. By the way, that pin position on six was interesting in the final round because John Rom came up short. I think he misstruck his iron. I don't think that that was a good shot for him, but he ended up hitting a good lag putt or at least a good second putt. He two putted from, from he where chipped. he was off he the chipped. green. Did he chip? Oh, wow. Really good okay. chip. Yeah. And he lag putted on five. That's what I'm thinking of. He, he was kind of front of green on five and he putted from there. But on six, he was off the green front. Kepka was long. And that is like, really not where you want to be. And Kepka ended up making bogey. And so when you're going at that pin, I, I found myself wondering, wanting to ask you, like, where are you aiming for that? Because it seems like if you aim at that high right shelf that you're risking going over and that's the deadly, deadly spot. Whereas if you're down on the lower level, you know, you're not making birdie more than likely, but two putting from there or even getting up and down from where John Rahm was, seems pretty feasible so what's the what is even the approach there is it just like hit it anywhere and just don't go long it's a really difficult approach shot so i, I actually think john rom i'd have to go back and rewatch. i don't think he misstruck it i think he misjudged the wind and got a little gust or something because i think he thought that shot was better than it ended up being okay generally on six when the pin's on the right if you're kind of pin high on the right or just somewhere over there you're you're okay that putt from down below lagging at 50 70 feet that is such a hard putt to get the speed right that i'm not just taking some kind of conservative approach and accepting a 50 foot putt i'm not doing that so i think you are trying to kind of go at that pin or keep it pin high a little bit right just a tough shot it's a, it's a really tough shot at augusta that separates the strikers from the non-strikers it's a great hole i think that's such uh, a, a great example of how Augusta has so many of these different targets that are small, and sometimes you can be aggressive with them. Other times you have to play defense, often on hole one, right? When you get a back pin on hole one, if you go over, if you go over that pin, you're dead. So it's cool that there's just this blend of shots. Got to be aggressive some places, got to be conservative in others. 
I believe, Joseph, you have an extensive notebook on what happened in that final round at Augusta National. So I'll kind of let you uh, guide things from here. Where do you want to start with emptying your notebook on this duel between Brooks Kepka and John Rahm? Yeah, I'd be interested in your opinion. I think this is a pretty sleepy Masters. Even though it had all the ingredients of being a really exciting duel, it didn't really materialize. Um, like one note I have is that I think this will end up being one of the leaderboards that when you look back on 15 years from now, it will be like the least reflective of who actually had a chance to win. Like Phil and, and Jordan Spieth are going to show up there. They they never had a chance to win this golf tournament. They got, I mean, they made some birdies down the stretch, but they were never live to win. Reed maybe could have Charles Schwartzled it and like <laughs> maybe gotten to minus 10 and had an outside chance. Russell yeah. Henley. Russell like, Henley, I was going to say. He had a prayer because I think he was, I think he played his back nine even. So if he had shot like three under, he could have posted minus 10. Yeah, but he overall, was like minus, minus seven in the middle of the back nine. I remember him seeing and I was kind of like, well, he could do it, but you know, it, it's going to take right. a lot. Exactly. And you know, one of my notes is that some of the players who had the chance to step up and win just didn't perform. And I, the the names that kind of come to mind there for me would be Brooks Kepka, obviously, really was flat, played a terrible round of golf. Victor Hovland didn't didn't do it. Um, mm-hmm. He's got some short yeah, game right, issues. That right right get from the beginning, didn't do yeah. it. Victor Hovland then, was out of it. I'm not sure it was even just the short game. He just didn't show up with anything on Sunday. Yeah, and I think that is one of the things to keep in mind with Hovland. The short game is still a problem. He's an amazing ball striker, but it makes you a little nervous when you don't have great short game and how you have to attack some of those targets at Augusta. The other player was Patrick Cantlay, who was actually kind of live in this tournament. And then I believe he shot plus three on the back nine. Um, Like he had a real chance to win that golf tournament and just kind of didn't give it much. So that's kind of one of the stories for me. John Rahm played excellently, but there wasn't a lot of, there, there wasn't a lot of pushing at the end. Yeah, I agree. You know, th- this had the setup of my favorite type of major championship, which is the dual runaway. You know, think of Troon, yep. Stenson versus Mickelson. You know, even though that ended with Stenson kind of separating himself a bit from Phil, that was just so incredible to watch that quote unquote match play situation between those two with really high stakes, both players playing incredibly well. And so, In the morning on Sunday, when they were finishing up that third round, I was seeing that sort of come together. Like these two guys could kind of separate themselves a bit, put some distance between themselves in third place and just have it out. But the problem was that neither of them, and especially Brooks Kepka, really played well enough to create that true dynamic. Even John Rahm, you know, he didn't advance much. He did what he had to do. He played a great, great final round of golf. But it was a 69. It wasn't a 65. You know, he didn't he didn't shoot the round that Phil Mickelson shot in the final round. And so it wasn't really a Troon situation. It was more like these two guys were separated enough so that there wasn't a real threat coming from behind. A few of the guys who sort of had a chance fell away. And then by the time we got to hole 10, I think. It was pretty clear that that Rom was in the driver's seat, and unless Kepka did something incredible or Rom had a little collapse on Amen Corner, which is always a possibility, it just didn't seem like that was going to happen. As soon as Kepka missed that putt on nine and did not make the par 
to Rom's bogey. It just seemed like this was going to be sort of a cruise into the finish, and it was. And it, it wasn't unimpressive. Like it was really impressive to see John Rom do what he did on the back nine. I think he played incredible golf on the back nine, but it didn't quite turn into that sort of uh, battle to the death that I was sort of hoping for on Sunday morning. I agree. And I think Brooks is, I'm very impressed with what Brooks did this week for the record. I think that's a fascinating story going forward. His version of the events in his post round uh, with Amanda Renner, I didn't quite agree with. Like he, he talked about not getting some good breaks and how the approach on nine could have rolled down to a couple feet. Yeah, I, I, that wasn't a great approach shot either. And it could have been in the bunker. Like I, Brooks was just not sharp. I will say I have quite a few notes on Rom, and I think his round was pretty brilliant. I know it was only, he only shot three under par, but if you go back and click through his round, he hit some exceptional golf shots. The chip, the like, kind of half wedge into number three, making birdie. That was a phenomenal golf shot. Even the approach into four, like that's not an easy shot. And it was conservative. Like he hit a, it's kind of into the center left of the green, but it was a phenomenal shot. His pitch on number eight, turning that into a birdie. That was a golf shot. It rolled to less than a shot. Unbelievable shot. And there were just so many. The approach into 14, obviously, one of the best shots of the tournament. He played really well. I'd even say that the chip in 18, um, like Scotty Scheffler and Tiger, their wins weren't the most glamorous the way that they finished. And Roms had the opportunity to kind of be a little bit ugly too with his tee shot. And he turned it into a really nice par. So I, I think Rom played a pretty flawless round. Not flawless round, but exceptional round. Yeah, it, it, it seemed really, really solid. Like he wasn't yeah. hitting an exceptional number of brilliant shots. He clearly didn't have his A plus game for long stretches this week. For long stretches, he had his like B game, but he managed it really well. And when I'm looking at Rom's final round, I'm kind of looking at that stretch between like hole seven and hole 14, the heart of the round and his tee shots, huge tee shot on seven, 325 fairway, huge tee shot on nine. He hit a bad approach and that hole didn't turn out well, but he hit that tee shot 326 down the hill. Good position. 10, 316, perfect position. 11, 343, perfect position. 13, 307, perfect position down the left. That's an uncomfortable shot for him. He got it around the corner. He was able to make the, the area of the green into comfortably. This is just sort of bludgeoning, you know, just like ball striking, ball striking. And then his approaches were often just sort of to the middle of the green, sane approaches, easy two putts. And on 14, he was able to attack that pin, get pretty close and make a birdie. But this is the type of game that's just really, really hard to catch. Like that kind of performance off the tee is so dominant. And he does it with seeming relative ease. Totally. So I have, I've been digging through some John Rahm stats because I want to give a, a testament to how well he's played at Augusta. And I think I found an interesting one for you, Garrett. So okay, talking to, obviously, like John Rahm, the off the tee performance this past week was amazing. He's one of the best drivers of the golf ball in the game. If he's not number one, he's number one A, one B with Cameron Young. And he started to put together quite the resume at Augusta. So Recently been working on putting together a historical database of all Masters results going back to the first edition of the tournament. 
John Rahm has now in his first seven starts at Augusta. Do you know how many top tens he has? A, a lot, probably. But five. what is it? He has five in, <laughs> yeah. his, in his first seven starts. Okay. How yeah. many, where do you think that puts him historically? How many golfers do you think have done that? Five top tens in their first seven starts at Augusta. Just what are your thoughts on that? Who do you think is the last player to do it? Like any, any thoughts? I know I'm really putting you on the spot here. I would have had no clue before I checked this morning. I don't really have any clue, but it, it feels like something that Jack Nicholas might have done. It feels like something that somebody like Tom Weiskopf could have come out of nowhere and done. There are a few players who started off their careers really, really well at Augusta. Ben Crenshaw did, but maybe none of them. I don't know. What, what did you find? So only nine golfers have ever done it, and John Rahm is the 10th. And part of what's, I think, particularly impressive about John Rahm's is that, especially back in the day in the Masters, it was a lot of guys' first seven starts, right? Like, yes. if, if it was the 1938 edition of the Masters, like, no right. one had played it more times than the, the people. So, so it could have been names. like Horton Smith or somebody like that could have. Exactly. Ed Dudley yeah. has had six uh, top 10 finishes in his first <laughs> seven starts, right? Okay. The most recent player to do it was Hale Irwin in 1978. Oh, so wow. Since 1978, no player has had five top 10 finishes in their first seven starts at Augusta. John Rahm has now added his name to the list. I think that's a really interesting statistic. He also has a win, right, this year. And so he joins just Arnold Palmer, Byron Nelson, Gary Player, and Henry Picard. Uh, as being players who have five top tens in their first seven starts at Augusta with a win included. I think it's wow. a pretty interesting statistic and way to view John Rahm within a historical context. Well, God, just the fact that Tiger Woods didn't do that. No. I mean, I guess he played as an amateur for two years before he won the 97 Masters. But then I would have thought that he would have just reeled off, you know, five straight top tens, but I guess maybe he didn't. Maybe 1998 was a, was an off year. Tiger's first two starts at Augusta were a tied for 41st as an amateur, and then he missed the cut in 96, and he finished 18th and 99. So that's disqualifying. Okay. John Rom, there it is. John Rom is the only player since 1978. I'm putting this database to the test, so I hope <laughs> this was kind of a buzzer beater in terms of pulling this statistic before we started recording. Somebody can fact check me, but I'm pretty this is, confident. This is the golf record, by the way, that you're uh, putting together with Kyle Porter and, and others. Right, right, yes. So I'm, I'm pretty almost, I'd say 99.9% .9 sure this statistic is correct. John Rom is the first player since Hale Irwin in 1978 to finish in the top 10 five times in his first seven starts at Augusta. And I think that's much more impactful than any other major championship venue or, or tournament because this is the one held at the same course every year. So to start right. to put together such a resume on the course he's going to be at every year, you got to take note. So then what is it about this course that you think suits John Rahm so well? Because when I think of John Rahm, I think of like, no one's going to beat him at Torrey Pines. No one's going to beat him at Oak Hill coming up for the PGA Championship. That kind of course, if it's sort of wet, if it's narrow, if there's some rough, if it just really rewards somebody who can bludgeon the hell out of the ball, as he did on the back nine at Augusta this year, then that's going to be the kind of course where he really thrives. Augusta National, you know, it, it rewards his type of game. There's no doubt about that. But it also rewards other types of games. So why is it that he does so well here? Well, so first of all, Augusta's a hardcore long iron 
approach test. And John Rahm is one of the best in the world. I think I had pulled a stat like six months ago. I was looking at approaches between like 230 and 270 yards from the fairway. And I believe Rahm hits the green in that situation like 8% more often than the guy who's in second place. Like he's just dominant on like a 250 yard approach shot. And I know a whole like hole four isn't quite that long, but when you start to think about which player do I want hitting my approach shot on hole four at Augusta, John Rahm's right at the top of that list. So long iron approach, absolutely. I think another huge part of Augusta is that sure, really long and pretty wide, but when you have wide misses at Augusta, you get penalized. If you're in the trees, you got to have a pretty clever recovery shot to save par. And if you're consistently putting it 320 yards down the center of the fairway, you're going to have a lot of opportunities as a good approach player. So when I think about a hole like seven, if I picture Rory standing on the tee of seven, and he does not hit the ball as, as accurately as John Rahm, versus John Rahm standing on hole seven, whose tee shot do I feel more comfortable with in avoiding trouble? It's not close. I feel way better with John Rahm going up and hitting that stock fade down the middle. So I think there are a lot of reasons that Augusta fits his game so well. His short game probably goes a little bit under the radar, but John Rahm is exceptional at pitching around that place. So um, the chip on six in the final round. Yes. The chip on 18. The, the chip Rahm, on the chip 13. on one. It wasn't actually the, the chip on one wasn't all that good, but he made the putt for par. So he was up and down. The chip on 13 was really good, right? So yeah. John Rahm is really good. He has great hands on and around the green. So um, I think it's a place that he's going to continue to have a ton of success. And again, he joined, he's now the 10th player to ever finish in the top 10 five times in his first seven starts. So pretty good. So jumping off of your point about how Augusta does penalize wide misses, not a single time in the final round did John Rahm hit it off the planet, off the tee. Those misses on two and, I mean, three wasn't really a miss, but it did trickle into the second cut. He was still in the arena, basically. He was never deep in the trees. Brooks Kepka badly pulled tee shot on the first hole. Badly pulled tee shot on number eight. Badly pulled tee shot on 17. He was struggling with something off the tee. And it's not just that he missed the fairway. It's that he missed the whole corridor. He was in the trees on those holes and he wasn't able to get effectively back and play on one. He, he had a great scramble for par, but you know, eight, he parred that hole when he should be birdying that hole in that final round in that situation. Most of the time he gave up a shot to Rom in that situation and he bogeyed 17 after birdying the previous two holes. So is that kind of what went wrong in Kepka's round, you know, when you're looking, when you're doing a diagnosis of Brooks's round, how highly do those tee shots rank? And what are some of the other items that you would look at in diagnosing what, what went wrong for him in shooting the 75? Yeah. And, and when we talk about why misses being penalized, I'm sure there are people who are like, Joseph, Phil Mickelson finished in the top five and Cameron Smith has given it goes here. Like, what do you mean wide misses are penalized? I think the way to think about this is, well, if you have a wide miss, you're probably chipping. So if you, when you get offline, you better have good short game like both Cam Smith and Phil Mickelson do. Because if you do get offline here, you probably have to punch it into a favorable location and then get up and down. So I think the perfect example here is Victor Hovland, where when things are going well and he's hitting the ball well, He'll, he'll be fine, especially in soft conditions, and he can do pretty well. But when he hits an errant tee shot, 
he's probably going to have he's he's going to have to hit himself into a location where he has a chip off a tight lie and that's where some bogeys are going to start to accumulate so it wouldn't surprise me if victor hovland has a a bunch of finishes between eighth place and like 22nd during his master's career i think you're going to see that brooks i'd need to go shot by shot to really diagnose everything here and like maybe look at it from a strokes gain perspective but he was he was just flat um hit some good iron shots like even on number one that was a really good recovery shot but brooks didn't have it a lot of wide shots didn't convert some opportunities um i I would need to look at his strokes gain putting rounds in the last i'd be pretty confident it was negative in the final round just didn't have it uh really sloppy on nine just a couple things like that that peak brooks kepka doesn't normally do and bad tee shots on the first three par threes. Bogeyed all of them. Bunker on four, long on six, and he was left on 12 and, and hit a pretty poor first chip there. So, yeah, I think it was sort of all around, and he was missing a few makeable putts too. You, you know, the six-footers, the eight-footers, you know, those need to go in if you're if you're spraying it a little bit. And, you know, he just, he just didn't quite have it. But looking at this performance by Kepka though, you have to be impressed and you have to start to ask some questions about the sort of popular notion that players on the live tour are going to regress in terms of their skill sets. Now, Phil Mickelson also played extraordinarily well. I'm not sure how much we can read into that because he'll just show up in a major sometimes like he did at Kiowa and play unbelievably well after having not done anything for like a year and a half. Patrick Reed also was T4, right? I think his performance kind of went under the radar. He was really great this week. And so putting all of these together, do you think we have to start to rethink the way that we talk about the competitiveness of live golfers when they come to these majors? I have so many thoughts on this. So for one, no, I I think overall live performed pretty well. And I think it was kind of in line with expectations. They had 18 of the 88 players in the field, I believe. And when you remove some of the old guys and the amateurs, they had like 18 out of 80. I mean, they had about a quarter of the field. They finished with three in the top six, which is outperforming expectations, sort of. They only had one other player in the top 20. So that kind of balances it back out. Like, I think they kind of performed how I expected them to. I didn't think that live golfers would all show up and stink. Some of them did. Dustin Johnson played terribly. But... Overall, I think the narrative that like, oh, 54 holes isn't enough preparation for 72 holes, I just disagree with. But one point, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a really good golfer, and he was saying he thinks that maybe sleeping on the lead's a little bit different on live versus uh, in a 72-hole tournament. And I think that is an interesting dynamic that is a little bit different between live and, and the PGA Tour, where, or PGA Tour, a major where you're like waiting around, you're the last person to tee off. You kind of have the night before feels a little different versus a 54 Uh hole shotgun start tournament. I do think trying to close out an event might be a little bit different. So maybe that's something that's going to be interesting to watch for. What what is your reaction to that? I I really like that, that last point and it's really hard to quantify, right? Definitely. That, that is just a, a feeling that you have about playing a golf tournament. The tournaments on live right now, are really, really, really different from majors. And so going from a live event to a major has to be a shocking transition. 
Whereas going from a big PGA Tour event, one of these designated events to a major, is a smoother transition. There's obviously a big difference, but right now there are more similarities between a PGA Tour event and a major than there are between a live event and a major. And one thing I've, I've, always, I've thought about since the beginning with live is they only have a limited number of players. What is it? 40, it's 48, right? I'm 48, yeah. 40, yeah. 48. I was like, is it 48 or 54? 48 players <laughs> yeah, on the yeah, golf I course. I get confused too. Why, why not remove the shotgun start and just have them tee off in order? It wouldn't really extend the length of the play that much. One of the advantages they have is that you're only – Get, have to get 48 guys through. So if they got feedback from Kepka, like, you know what? It'd be kind of helpful if the leaders teed off later and like that dynamic was a little bit more similar to major championships. Why not change it? I don't think it would fundamentally alter the product that Liv has. It wouldn't extend the rounds that much. So I think you maybe would see Liv do this if, if somebody made a compelling argument. Because I actually think it's a pretty compelling reason to change it without sacrificing on the product they've built. I think it would just hurt them in terms of their messaging uh, that Why? we're different because the shotgun start is part of what they're presenting as a, as a transformed product, right? They're saying that this is a different form of golf. This is golf 2.0, right? And to get rid of the shotgun start is to get rid of one of the fundamental aspects of what they say their new product is. It's to get rid of their, one of their main innovations and I agree with you that it would probably be better for the players to do it. It would just be kind of hard for them to do it, just as it would be hard for them to extend the events to 72 holes, right? Yeah, that's fair. I think if they did it just for the final round, maybe it wouldn't change things that much and it wouldn't really change the viewing experience because you final have all round, the golfers yeah. on the same time, yeah, on the, on the course at the same time that way too. But right. yeah, we'll see. That'll be an interesting storyline to follow. All right, coming up, I'll bring in Shane Bacon, who spent the past week as the announcer of the featured group's stream on masters.com. We're going to do a little Masters mailbag, me and Shane. That's after this break. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Club Champion. Club Champion helps golfers of any skill level play better golf through custom-fitted and custom-built equipment. Their extensively trained master fitters provide an in-depth, data-driven, tour-level fitting process and have access to 50,000 hittable head and shaft combos, as well as 60-plus brands. They also use industry-leading technology like TrackMan and Sam Putt Lab, and they build to the tightest tolerances in the industry. Club Champions fittings produce real results for every level of player, including an average of 22-yard increases off the tee and an average of 10-yard improvements in dispersion. One thing that you really get from Club Champion fittings that I don't think is talked about enough is some knowledge about your own game, how you spin the ball, how you launch the ball, what you are actually doing at impact, how far you hit each of your clubs. I think these are things that golfers are not very aware of simply because they don't often get on track man and look at the numbers with somebody who really knows what they're looking at and club champion fitters really know what they're looking at. So they're not only getting you new clubs that are going to work for you. They're also giving you some awareness about what your golf game actually is and what you need out of equipment in general. So I think they're really eye opening experiences. I would highly recommend them. 
Fried Egg listeners, this is the deal that Club Champion is offering to you. You can use the code FRIEDEGG to get 50% off the cost of your Club Champion fitting with the purchase of a club. That's code FRIEDEGG, one word. All right, back to the episode. I am here with the man, Shane Bacon. Shane, how are you doing? I'm doing good. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very awesome and very um, exhausting week, you know, to be uh, getting up early and, and calling, you know, golf nonstop. And then there's always a lot of activity in and around the Masters. And I think, you know, you're, you're at such a high for the whole week that when Monday after the Masters hits, I feel like it, it's almost like when you return from a Vegas trip, you know, and you, you don't realize how kind of tired you are until, uh, until you're actually home or you're on the flight. And, uh, and so I, I feel like I'm on the come down right now. You know what I'm saying? Your body is beginning to rebel and, and say, you know, what the hell, man. And, and you, you got the pleasure of seeing my three-year-old a couple of minutes ago, but also coming ho- home to two kids, uh, three and three and one, um, doesn't really allow you much, uh, much time to go, you know what? I'm going to take some time on the couch. It's like, <laughs> no, let's, let's play ghost for three hours. So, yeah. Um, and and yeah. let's, re- let's relieve my spouse here for, for That's a minute. Who, who um, I have. <laughs> Cindy goes, uh, Cindy, she went and picks, she had to go run a couple of errands and she was going out the door earlier and she looked back at me and said, I'm not leaving with the kids. This is a really interesting feeling. You know, it's been it's been eight days since I've I've been home. So um I, I shoot I will say, you know, we give credit when credit is due a lot of the time. Um these are the times because I've done it. I've done, you know, two, three days um alone with both kids a couple times, you know, where she's gone on trips or gone on on, you know, vacations and stuff. I mean, she had like five or six days after they went to school where she had no help and nobody relieving her. Yeah. And those are those moments where you're like, you're a really awesome human being. Like, I think you're awesome all the time, but you know, this is, this is adding a new layer to it. So uh, you always get home and you're impressed by your significant other. And now you're on a podcast with me. So we will keep this segment nice and concise, but I did want to hear from you because obviously you were calling featured groups on the streams all week. I heard your voice a lot. You guys did a terrific job. It's always such a pleasure to be able to choose from a number of different streams, not just see the broadcast, but kind of curate your experience a little bit and also hear from some announcers that you really like hearing from. I, I enjoy all the announcers on the streams in, in different ways. So I, I, you know, I'm curious after your stream wraps up, usually your stream is going to wrap up before the tournament, before play wraps up, if I'm not mistaken. Well, so, so the, the, the feed goes the whole day. So, yeah. so featured groups will go, you know, basically from when the players tee off, you know, Thursday, Friday, we're going to get a relatively early notable tee time because, you know, there's no coverage on CBS till later in the afternoon. And then, um, but it goes through basically until, you know, the final group is done. And typically one of those groups is going to be late. The nice thing is there are two teams. So, um, you know, Colt, Billy and I will typically get in there, um, you know, 738 in the morning to do, you know, an early tee time that's notable. You know, we had, it was kind of wild, uh, Garrett, there were, we had four groups over the weekend at times, which is the most we'd ever had. And, um, you know, it, I've done, you know, I've done, you know, full broadcast and, and, and network golf. And it almost felt like doing that in terms of, of how much we were bouncing around and showing so much golf and so many different players. Um, but yeah, I mean, it goes the whole time. So then Brian and Smiley come in in the afternoon mm-hmm. and they take us home. But yeah, I mean, it's, 
I mean, you know, Sunday, I think, I think Colt, Billy and I were in there eight twenty eight was our, was our go time on, on Sunday. And, and we walked out of there at 3 PM, um, with, with not really much, uh, much break. We we'll take, we'll all three take a, a 10 minute walk around. So, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll hit the producer. Uh, Steve is our producer. He's super awesome. Uh, he's a lovely guy and he's a really, really good producer, but you know, we'll hit him and go, Hey, we're going to take 10 minutes. And it's funny. They have the green sandwiches and the coolers in, in our content center. So you'll grab a pimento cheese and just yeah. go outside and, you know, like soak in sunlight for a minute. And then uh, <laughs> it's, it's right back to it. But, uh, yeah, it, it very much is helpful that there's three of us, uh, in those seats, I believe among the different streaming teams. You have the holes four through 16, amen corner team. You have 15 and 16 team. Is there any agreement among those different teams as to who has the best gig? No, I don't think so. I mean, the thing about it is I think, it, you know, it, it pops in your head right now, like something popped in my head, but then you think about, you get to watch Amen Corner and you see some players going through there and you mm-hmm. want to watch them play Amen Corner, you're going to flip over there. I remember, you know, yesterday afternoon after I was done and I was back at our rental house um, watching obviously the CBS telecast on the TV. Um, the There was, I think Spieth and, and Phil were playing 15, 16. So I, I flip it over there and I have that on. And then and there was one point early, I think early on Saturday where I had the four, five, six stream on. So I feel like even as somebody that's involved in it, I'm bouncing between all, all four and with the on the range five streams. So I would say if you want to follow Tiger for the day, you're going to watch us. You know, if you want to see Jordan Spieth early in the day on Thursday and they're playing four, five, six, you're going to watch that. And I would say all of this, what's really, really cool and what I think CBS does an amazing job at is all of the streams have a bit of a different feel. Do you, do you sense that a bit, Garrett? I mean, it, you, yeah, you get, absolutely. you get like, you know, Iona and Ned, I, I think were an awesome team this year, you know, and that was 15, 16 yeah. and you'd pop in there and it was a totally different feel than maybe what you're going to get at Amen Corner. And, you know, to me, mm-hmm. All of the different crews, and they're all really good, and they're all unique. Um, you know, I mean, it's like Sluman and Verplank are on four, five, and six in terms of the analysts. They can bounce off each other. I mean, they, they're guys that are friends, and they know so much about each other's golf games, and they obviously know the golf course so well that I don't know if there's kind of a hierarchy to which one's the best, but I think it's really dependent mm-hmm. on what you're trying to experience that day in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. That the the different teams kind of have different vibes between each other and then also they're just commenting on different types of golf holes, different moments in the golf course and in the golf round. And yeah, bouncing between those streams is one of my favorite aspects of the modern masters, right? This has not always been the case with the masters when I was a kid. It was all about the limitation of the coverage window. That's what was sort of unique about it. Now what's unique about it is the opposite the availability of anything and everything and a multitude of different experiences. And it's just something I look forward to every year. And right now I find myself getting a little bit sad that it's over. I know. <laughs> you know? I mean, and then I have to Sunday wait another year. Is, Sunday night when you're a golf fan is really tough because again, I think for everybody watching, you know, masters fans going to the tournament, uh, you know, if you're lucky to get a ticket, any by the players come Sunday evening, you know, you, you, you're kind of exhausted because it was so much and you put so much energy into it. And at the same time, you're kind of exhausted yet hungry for it again, because, you know, I, I was listening to, uh, it, I think it might've been the no laying up rap rap pod. I think Solly said, 
you know, he watches the the ceremony at the end because he doesn't want to lose any moment of Masters Week. You know, it's kind of the last thing you can watch. Uh, and I mean, I did the same thing. I was I was you know at the rental home uh, last night watching you know watching the the ceremony and and all that because again, the moment that ends and that stream cuts off. You don't get it again until next year. And so uh, I will say, I, I want to do give a shout out though. The On the Range stream, this was really the first year I really got into it. And yeah. Kelly is so good. Breed is so good. Smiley and Amanda down there on the on the grounds. It's a totally different experience than watching live golf. But to me, it was like I'd been introduced to a new candy where yes. I went, oh, this tastes amazing. I should have been doing this for years. I, I felt like that was a, a lot of fun to really kind of dive into before we got going on our streams. Yeah, I feel like that's an, uh, a sort of underused type of stream. I, I, I would like that at every tournament because there's so much that you can talk about with somebody who really knows the golf swing, right, and really knows the players with a range stream. And, and, and we see that with the Masters every year. So getting right into the first question that we got for this mailbag. We're doing going to do like a miniature mailbag here. Just a few questions. I put out a call this afternoon, you know, got a few responses, a few interesting questions that I'll just throw your way. One that came from Will Knights, the Fried Egg Zone Will Knights. Never heard of him. That, that, that ties in, that ties in to, uh, you know, what we've been talking about so far. Is there any part of you that misses watching the Masters at home as a normal fan? It's an interesting. I mean, shocking that Will ask a good question. Um, it's uh, <laughs> it's interesting. I was thinking about this this week, you know, and I, I will say this. I was thinking about this exact thing this week. It was before we started, so I think this was on Wednesday, and I was thinking about what my life used to look like in terms of this week because it's always been my favorite week in golf. You know, it used to be when I was writing and blogging. Uh, you know, I went a few times. You know, with the press pass. But most of the years I was really blogging, I was at home watching on, on TV and I had all the streams going. I will say, as I was thinking about that, I think what I felt extremely thankful about and a very cool feeling personally is I would watch, you know, I would turn the stream on the moment it came on. I would turn CBS on the moment the broadcast came on. And now you're a part of those people's experience. So now all of those people that used to be me that can't wait till 8.28 on Sunday for the stream to start or can't wait till 3 p.m. for the CBS broadcast to start, now you're involved in other people's enjoyment of this amazing event in a very small way. I mean, you know, it's not about us, but in a weird way, you're helping, you know, present this amazing, amazing experience. I mean, it's the best experience in sports, in my opinion, in terms of, as you said, there's so much available. There's so many different avenues you can go down. You can watch golf from sunup to sundown. And so it's it's humbling and it's exciting to feel like you in a small way are helping that experience for a fan at home. And so I think in that regard, no, I don't I don't miss the at home thing because I've I feel like I've kind of in a way kind of graduated to something that I would have dr never dreamed of being able to do. And it feel like I feel just so blessed and thankful to get asked to do this, you know, for a, a third year. And so, you know, maybe there's an eight year old kid or 10 year old kid at home that, you know, Colt's making chuckle once an hour or Billy's, you know, throw an inside at him, um, you know, as they're watching Jordan Spieth, you know, make birdies and bogeys. So, yeah, it, it's. You know, I mean, you, you, everybody always wishes for, you know, the other life or the old life. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case here. I think I love the seat I'm in. Well, that's the classy answer. 
but uh, I can I can see where you're coming from on that. It is a it is a real privilege to be able to to call some of this action. So here's a question from Bo Bromhall, and I'd like to take this question in you know whatever direction you want to take it because you commentated on the first part of Phil Mickelson and Jordan Spieth's round as part of the featured groups coverage. And Bo asks, how important do you think it was that Mickelson posted the minus eight number as they went to the back nine, as Rom and Kepka went to the back nine? We can answer that question, but also just open it up to what your impressions were of Phil Mickelson's round, as well as Jordan Spieth's. They both shot great numbers on Sunday and really made some noise. And so you were sort of part of that action. Tell me about that. Yes, yeah, so you know, uh, Speed hits it in the fairway on one, and I'd, I'd been doing some notes before we got going with because they were our first group. It was Jordan and Phil were our first group out, and I was so pumped because I haven't seen much Phil Mickelson golf. You know, Garrett. I mean, I'm a left-handed golfer. Phil was my guy as a kid. You know, <laughs> I mean, this was the dude that I rooted for. This was the guy I wanted to be. Right. Obviously, it's been a very interesting last few years with Phil Mickelson, and you know, feelings have changed a bit personally in terms of exactly how you experience him, but. I still want to watch Phil Mickelson play golf. And when I heard we were getting that group, I was super fired up. I, I was I was, I was high-fiving Billy. I'm like, we get Phil and Jordan. You know, this is great. And uh, Jordan was walking off the first tee, and he hits that iron close. And I had these notes written down about 2018. And, you know, in 2018, he was nine back. And in, in, in this year, he was 11 back of the leaders. And he hits it a foot on one, and he makes birdie. And then he birdies two. And I, I just mentioned, you know, he, he shoots 64 in 2018. And, and with, you know, despite the bogey at the last, if he doesn't make bogey there, he, he literally might have gotten in a playoff with Patrick Reed. And, you know, lo and behold, like two hours later, he's doing exactly what he did in 2018. He made the same amount of birdies, Garrett. I mean, he made nine birdies in that round in 2018. He made nine birdies on Sunday. So that was cool to watch the magic of Jordan Spieth at Augusta National up close. And, you know, he made both, he made bogeyed both the par, th- par threes on the first nine, but he had all these birdies. He was hitting these amazing shots. And it was funny because Jordan Spieth made Phil Mickelson's game look conservative. I mean, <laughs> Phil was playing just very solid golf. I mean, he was and under a- under control, right? Phil Mickelson seemed relatively under control, whereas Jordan, you, you didn't know it was coming next, which is what we're used to thinking of Phil Mickelson. I mean, Phil was Jordan before Jordan, right? And yes. I mean, I was looking up stats before the round and Phil was like, I think he was tied for second in driving accuracy for the week, which again, these aren't things we typically, you know, align with Phil Mickelson. And he was hitting fairways. He was hitting greens. He was hitting these awesome shots. That one at a six was epic, you know. And he's making birdie after birdie after birdie after birdie. And you really got that sense that it's probably not going to be good enough to win. But this is a magical situation at Augusta National on a Sunday that these both guys are throwing haymakers at each other. Garrett, there was not much conversation between these two. I mean, we watched them a decent amount early because they were our only group. They weren't walking necessarily close to each other. They weren't talking much. These were close people at one point. You know, I mean, it was famously, I think it was George, it was Phil that called Fred Couples and said, we need to pick this 19-year-old, you know, and put him on the team, you know, the USA team. And so they've obviously had an interesting relationship and who knows what the players think about Phil at this point. But you got the sense at the shot on six that Phil might do something pretty special and as you know, a lot of the times when these rounds happen early and they start to make the birdies, something dumb happens. They don't birdie eight or they spin it off the green on nine. And he just kept avoiding those situations. And I was impressed with the length. I was impressed with how straight he was getting the golf ball. And honestly, Garrett, it felt like 
38-year-old Phil Mickelson again, like the way he was playing golf. And I wasn't surprised with the way he finished. I mean, nearly holds out on 17 and then makes that one on 18. The bummer, again, just like 2018, was Spieth hits the one left in the trees. Yeah. And I thought, I kept thinking somebody has to get to nine. That's what I kept thinking. They got to get to nine. If they don't get to nine, it's not going to be good enough. And of course, nine wasn't going to be good enough either. But I just felt like nine with the way Rom and Kep could play the first nine, I thought nine at least had a, a, a outside shot if somebody hit a, ba- a bad shot on 11 and 12. And obviously, mm-hmm. Rom never did that. But it was very cool to watch those two. I, I think, Garrett, if you were going to have me list my favorite golfers of all time to watch, I think those two would be in my top four. So again, I mean, you talk about the golf nerd in me and and the young golf fan in me being excited about, you know, my, my job that day more than I already would be. It was, it was a pretty cool Sunday to get the chance to kind of follow those two guys. Yeah. Incredible pairing. And to kind of go back to Bo Bromhall's question, if they had gotten, if one of them had gotten to minus nine, do you think that would have started to wriggle its way into the psyches of John Rahm and Brooks Kepka? Or do you think that minus eight did it, that, that that gave those guys a number to think about and that that had some kind of impact on the action? Or do you think that John Rahm was just like, you know, yeah, I'm going to do better than minus eight. That's not the number I have to be. Uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, the way Rahm played all week and the golf shots he was hitting in the most crucial moments of the Masters, those shots that ruin your chances, the second into 11, you know, the second into 12, you know, getting cued into 13, obviously with the new tee, getting cued into 13 now is with a three, four, five iron, not with a seven, eight, nine iron. And so maybe, but just every shot Rom was hitting under pressure was perfect. You know, he hit it right over the bunker on 12, right? I mean, he hits it exactly where you'd like to hit it on 11. I just feel like he was so dialed with what he was trying to do that the only thing I think nine would have factored into is if the ball doesn't kick out on 18. Because yes. if that ball stays in the, in the left and they don't find it there, Rom could have easily made a double. And so, mm-hmm. you know, double, I think, would have had him at nine. So, you know, I mean, it would have, that would have been very, very interesting if somebody would have been at nine and the tee shot would have stayed and not kicked out. I believe double would have gotten him to 10 because so I think he finished at minus 12. He made a par. Yeah. I mean, it, but, but the point, point is taken because if you hit it where Rom hit it off the tee and you're at minus 12 and there's somebody in the clubhouse at minus nine, then you're at the very least starting to think about it. So, uh, so that, that, you know, it, it could have had some kind of impact, but it just would have been hard for Phil and Jordan to get to a number that would have really bothered, uh, Rom on that back nine, the way he was playing. Well, you know, so did Jordan finish at seven? I believe he finished at seven. Yes. He yeah. finished at seven. He was tied with Patrick Reed and maybe one other player at T4. So, so there was no real way on 18 for him to get to 10. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. You, to your point, 10 was probably the number they had to get to. And, you know, I mean, he, he bogeys both the par threes, you know, on the first nine. And, I mean, you know, you, you don't bogey those. And, honestly, he didn't play him very well. He didn't hit very good shots. But, yeah. you know, you par there and don't hit that shot on 18. And maybe 10 was in play. But, I mean, you know, we always say this. And I know it's become a running joke on Twitter. You know, if they go out in 29, if they go out in 30. But, you know, Playing perfect golf is 64-63. There's been two 63s in Masters history. And so 
these guys shooting 65 and 66 are some of the all-time final round numbers, right? And so yeah. it just shows how hard it is to do that. I say this a lot when we're on 59 watch. You know, a guy shoots seven under on the front nine or something like that at a random tour event. And you go, man, that's great. He's got to make six more birdies to shoot 59. <laughs> you know, it's like when you think about that, it, it really changes how impressive those types of scores are. And and again, I mean, they they play, they play just brilliant golf. I don't want to say flawless golf because obviously there was some, some – ups and downs on the Jordan Speed side, but it was it was damn impressive golf from Phil Mickelson. You know, I mean, I, like this guy's played some really good golf in majors the last few years. I mean, he wins the PGA in twenty one, and he finishes second in the Masters in twenty three. I don't. I feel like Phil might win another major. I mean, you know, like I really think he might win another major championship. It's kind of crazy because he is capable of doing that. You just don't know when or where or how he's going to show up because, I mean, literally, he's done nothing since Kiowa in terms of competitive golf. Like, it's been absent, but that was the case also before Kiowa. And so, you just, I mean, it's, yeah, you you don't know where he's going to pop up, and but clearly he is capable of doing what he did this week, right? He, he, He proved it. He showed that he has the game to do that. But he just disappears for long stretches and then comes back. It's just a very, very strange late career thing that, you know, I guess we've seen versions of it in the past with like Tom Watson or Freddie Couples at majors. But those guys were maybe a little more consistent and predictable because you just don't know when you're going to get it from Phil. And that's that's sort of uh, an interesting late career arc for for Phil. So just a couple more questions. Let's do lightning round style sort of um couple of questions here that I thought were interesting. Eddie Bajek says, what is your preferred strategy on number three? Do you like to blast driver up, you know, sort of to le- left of the green? It trickles down left of the green. Or do you like when guys sort of hit that iron to the top of the hill? What would you prefer to do and what do you like seeing? So this was a big talking point on our channel. Um, we had uh, what is what does Andy Johnson call them the Data Boys or whatever? Um, yeah, we we had they came for you. Oh yeah, well they came for Colt. It was a Colt take. Um, I see. And I think once they started to come for Colt, he dug a little deeper into it because he was trying to have some fun with them. But the first two days that whole location was front left and front right, and I thought Billy Kratzer, you know, made a really really good point. He said maybe this golf course was designed. To when it's a 350 yard par four, and the other, the the next longest or next shortest par four is 440. You know, so this is really the only quote unquote short par four at Augusta National. And he said, and when you look at the card, and these guys are so long, it makes them think birdie hole, right? You look at a 350 yard par four, and you go, this is a birdie hole. And he said, maybe the design was when the hole locations are in the front, it's just not a birdie hole. It's not mm-hmm. intended to be a birdie hole. And so when it was front left and front right, we saw some really bad shots when people bound, pound the driver. And then what was interesting was we saw more and more irons come out deeper into the week we got. You saw more players hitting iron to the top of the hill. When the whole location's back, it's driver all day. Hit driver, mm-hmm. hit driver, hit driver, hit driver. Yeah. And even analytically, this is probably incorrect, but I would say that we saw more good shots, not great shots, but good shots, when there was irons played to the fairway to the front left and front right hole location. Because if you hit it to the top of the hill and you have 110 or 100 yards in, you can hit it deep, and if it spins back, it'll get you know five, eight feet. But if it stays up there, it's going to be a quick putt, but it's a putt for birdie that you in, you in theory could make, but you're most likely going to two-putt. But it, when the way I look at it, it takes five out of play. And there were a few players this week that 
hit driver on Thursday, Friday, hit a pitch either short and it came back down the hill or blasted it deep, and they made five. And mm-hmm. it was just such an awkward shot for those players. So I would say it's all whole, whole location-based, but I would I would probably hit iron to the front ones off the tee if I was playing in, in, in the Masters. I'm probably not going to do that, but yeah. Interesting. You're probably not going to play in the Masters. Probably is what not. You're saying? Probably, I mean, are, are you? Are you? I mean, come on. U.S. Open qualifiers in three weeks. I played one <laughs> round of golf in two weeks. So if I win the U.S. Open, you know, I think there you, you get invited. I, I think that would do it. Yeah, yeah, so, and th- and that's within the realm of possibility for sure. I, for I can, sure, I can tell sure. you that. Well, you know, one thing related to the to the question about three is that players are not machines. They don't always follow the rules set out for them by their analytics advisors and they don't always follow the strategy that data suggests that everybody should follow. And that's part of the magic of a whole like three is that it actually motivates players to use some different strategies sometimes, even if what's suggested is that one strategy really works best on that hole. And, and that's just something that I don't think enough people really acknowledge that these guys are not machines. They don't always follow the rules. All right. Final question from our buddy Car for the Course. The Masters makes subtle and sometimes substantial tweaks almost every year. I assume he means to the course, but you know, maybe also to whatever else they're doing, right? Whether it's the broadcast or or anything else. What are your predictions, Shane, for the inevitable changes to the 2024 Masters? Do you have any ideas as to what should or can change next year? So I thought Phil Mickelson's point about extending that 13th tee box obviously they pushed it back a bit but having a little bit of a longer tee box back there so when it's into the wind or when it's cold like it was over this weekend you could push that thing up to the front take 15 20 yards off the number and maybe give players an opportunity to go I think was a really smart call by Phil um you know he said basically in the third round nobody went for it 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 was basically a layup from every player in the field and he said while the changes make a ton of sense to make it longer because everybody's longer and you know they're hitting mid irons in or even short irons into 13 when the conditions are changing a little bit like what we saw of 15 last year Garrett you know remember it was into the wind and nobody made an eagle on 15 last year so yeah. he said i thought that was a very interesting take is to to kind of maybe make that tee box just a little longer where you could maybe play at it 525 and not 545 when you know the wind's into the players or whatever i found that smart and I'll be very interested if you know if Augusta you know has any ideas or thoughts about doing something like that because when the conditions are perfect play it back and I thought it was brilliant this year I love the changes but I still want to see players uh you know at least capable of going for it if they wanted to even if that means everybody going for it hits it in the creek at least they go um so I thought that was really smart I'm trying to think of anything else um you know I've always wondered if there was an opportunity to to make 18 a little longer, but you know, the thing about 18 is I love the fact that if you hit a straight drive, it goes in those bunkers, you know, and I don't, yes. I don't want to take that away. I mean, they obviously made the initial changes because Tiger just hit it over all the bunkers when he was winning, you know, in 97, but I was wondering about that. Is there any opportunity to make that whole, you know, a little bit longer? And then the o- only other thing I was thinking is, and this probably goes against, you know, all the ideas you were talking about three, I was wondering if there was ever any idea about having it where that hole one day could play 330. You know, and again, put it in the hardest spot, probably that front left hole location, right? Because if you hit it over that green, that's it's t- it's tough too, right? So if you're yes. short, it's tough. Deep is tough. You could chip it down the hill and have it go off the front, and all of a sudden maybe you're making six. But we saw, I think we saw one player hit it on the green. You know, I think Neiman hit it on the mm-hmm. green maybe on Friday. 
But I just feel like since it's the only short hole at Augusta National and having that as just an outside option for a player that's very, very long, I think it would be kind of cool one day to see if it was actually legitimately drivable. I I asked Cameron Young ripped one one day. We had him on the coverage. And right as he stand at the tee, I said, Colt, can he get there? And he said, I don't think he can get there. He can get close, but he can't get there. And he smoked one. I mean, absolutely roasted one. And it landed 15 yards short of the green. It rolled up almost to the front of the green. But as that slope catches everything, you know, it came off the slope, but it was still kind of in that similar catch area. Right. And I was just wondering, as that shot happened, I went, it would be pretty interesting if that was ever something that was thought up. And maybe, again, maybe that goes against everything the third hole is. But it just, you know, as, as a person that always loves the idea of players maybe giving it a go occasionally on a par four, I've always thought that that would be something that would be cool one day, you know? Yeah. Open up the possibility that they could go long, like uh, yes. the 10th at Riviera. Because we don't see players going long of that green off the tee. It's just a little bit too far for that to be a viable option. So we see the very best drives just sort of hanging up on that slope on the right and offering that nice little pitch into the green, but rarely do we see them actually drive the green that I, I saw Phil's comments about 13 too. I think that's interesting. Obviously flexibility in teeing areas is not the specialty of Augusta national. They like having their two tees, their right. championship tees and their members tees. You know, when players weren't really going for it on the, on the uh, heavy weather days, there were still eight players that I counted. I, I was I was deep in these stats this week. <laughs> there were eight players who went for it in oh, the third there you round, go. So then which there is you go. not much, but there were some players who were still capable of getting there. And so that distance that they found for that hole, that length that they found for that hole, was pretty darn spot on. Yep. Considering that they don't have much flexibility, so I, you know, I thought that it worked. But yeah, I mean, could they build a kind of runway tee there and, and get it a little bit shorter on the days when they need that? That's a, that's a suggestion that I could see them reasonably implementing. I, I don't, I don't doubt that that's something that would be on the table. Garrett. So out of, so out of eight out of was that was on Saturday. So that have been 54 players, right? Because 55 made the cut and then Tiger W D. So that's eight of 54. What do you think is your perfect number for go or don't go on a par five? Because, you know, we don't see don't go par oh, yeah. fives hardly ever, but what do you feel yeah. like is the perfect number? Because I don't think it's half. I think half might be too many. Mm -hmm. um, eight might be a little too short in terms of the players that are able to do that. What do you feel right. like as a golf fan and somebody that obviously pays a lot of attention to this stuff would be the perfect kind of go, no, go number? I mean, this is a cop-out answer, but for me, it really depends that there just is no perfect number. I think if we talk about a perfect number for 13, I've heard Trevor Immelman say 70%. For me, that might be a little high. That might be getting to where you know we expect guys to go for it. And the only situation when they don't go for it is if they hit it in the trees on the right or if they hit it in the creek on the left. And I think that that's the place that we got to in the past several years with that hole where everybody went for it, except if they just hit it in some kind of hazard. And I think that that makes the hole less interesting. I think that you need some situations where players are laying up from the fairway. So looking at these stats that I gathered this week, looking at a bunch of shot trackers, the percentage who laid up from the fairway in the first round was 19%. Second round, 28% laid up from the fairway. Third round, 78% laid up from the fairway. So very different. And then fourth round, 40% laid up from the fairway. The go for it, you know, uh, percentages when the weather was good, 
it was between 50 and 65% going for it. For me, that's a good range for that hole. And I feel like I'm willing to take the cost of unusual weather days, turning that number into like, you know, 10% all of a sudden are going for it. That's kind of okay with me, but I can understand why there would be people who would say, you know, the hole becomes a little more boring on the days when there's weather because just almost everybody lays up and seeing guys lay up one after another, just from a viewing experience, if you were standing on that hole all day, you might be a little bit disappointed in that, especially if the go for it attempts don't turn out to be super exciting. But I don't know, from my perspective as a golf nerd, I kind of liked the variability, the days when it was really hard to go for it. And when guys did go for it, it was something exceptional. It was something special. Uh, Whereas on the days when the weather was good, you know, we were looking at like about half of the field or a little bit more going for it. And I also like that because it takes a darn good drive to get in position to go for that green on Sunday at the masters. It really does. And a lot of guys ended up in the water on Sunday, about 20% of the field ended up in the Creek. Amazing. Which was just something we haven't seen in a while. So I, I, to that point, cause that's a really, I think your point is, is totally right. And I to- couldn't agree with you more. You know, last year, 15, we didn't really get to see how 15 was going to play because it was into the wind the whole week. Yes. And like I said, nobody made Eagle, but, and I wrote this on Twitter, you know, when you go to Augusta national and you see that 15th green, and you see it in person. I always say the two smallest things in golf when you see it in person is the 15th green at Augusta and the pond on 18 at Torrey Pines. Like when you see them in person, you go, oh my gosh, it looks like, you know, the pond at Torrey looks like it's, you know, this massive, you know, you know, great lake. And then you get there and it, it kind of looks like, you know, it looks like something that you would jump into. I mean, it's so <laughs> tiny. And then 15 green at Augusta, when you see it in person, you go, dudes go for this are you yes. kidding me it is well that green looks wild. crazy and because especially you see the water in the back too yes you see that you see the. yeah i mean it looks it, it's pressed up the green is pressed up it looks like an island it's so intimidating so you know there are like pro golf is so crazy because like john rum four putted a hole and hit a 90 yard drive this week he won the masters by four you know i mean these guys everybody thinks they hit every shot perfect and they hit everything perfect and they never miss putt and they're very good at golf but you know they they hit a lot of terrible golf shots and i praise the pro golfer and it shows how good they are at golf to me one of the biggest examples of this is the second shot at a 15 that these guys can hit fairway woods onto the green and hold it, that they can hit yes. three irons onto the green and hold it. There are certain places ar- around golf that when you see the way these pros can pull golf shots out relatively consistently, it is mind-boggling that you would go for that green under pressure, that you would go for that green when you already have a great round going, and the fact that you pull that shot off. And I would say that 13 is getting a little bit more of that, which is so cool that, like you said, to take it on in tough conditions and to pull the shot off and hit it in the middle of the green and give yourself 30 feet down the hill for Eagle takes a, 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 a what was it? A momentous decision or whatever the term may be. Right. It's like, yeah, that, that is, it, it's such a big swing now for these players to pull off. And I've always felt that about 15. I mean, obviously Sergio had eight iron in in 2017. That's just not going to be the case anymore. But I think Sam Bennett, you know, like one of those first few rounds had like 256 into 15 hits three wood on the green, you know, yeah. You, 
People just that have never been there don't understand how impressive that is and how hard that is to pull off and how absolutely dialed your shot has to be to land there and stay there. And the fact that 13 is back to a little of that, it's always going to be easier than 15 because it's just going to play shorter. But it's a lot of fun to see those golf shots into those two par fives because a lot of bad stuff can happen when you're trying to get cute and a lot of good stuff can happen when you pull the shot off. Absolutely. I have nothing to add to that. That's that's really well put. So Shane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've kept you longer than I said I would. So enjoy your time at home. Appreciate you doing this with me. Yeah, it's uh, Garrett, you know, it's it you leave you leave the Masters week. You're tired. You know, you're like I said, you kind of have that Vegas come down. But there is an enormous feeling, and I can sense it from so many people that are involved in what we're able to do and lucky to get to do, but there's this enormous sense of real pride, and it really feels like this big team coming together to be a very, very small part of this incredible tournament and incredible sporting event. And, uh, you know, I I will be beaming for two, three weeks after this just because – it's such a cool week and it's my favorite week of the year. And, um, you know, to the Will Knights question, you, you truly are kind of pinching yourself when you get to say, welcome to the, you know, to the 2023 masters tournament, or, you know, when you get in text from some of the people that text you, it's, it's a very, you feel very blessed to be a part of it. And I'm, I'm very lucky to get to do this. So, um, I, I will be, I will be tired today, but I'll be, uh, reflecting on a lot of positives. All right. Thank you, Shane. One more quick break, and I'll come back with Joseph Lamagna to talk about the storylines we're tracking this week. I want to take a moment here to talk about the Fried Eggs membership program. It's called Club TFE. And if you want to find out all the details about what this membership offers, go to thefriedegg.com slash membership. We're just coming off of a really fun master's week in Club TFE. We had daily blog posts. One of those posts was an architect's roundtable where we basically just invited on three architects to talk all about Augusta National. And they ended up saying stuff that I hadn't really noticed before or hadn't seen said before. Just from their perspective as architects, it was so interesting to see what they saw and what they thought was important in Augusta National. And then in addition to that, we did a master's pool where basically people just chose a bunch of players. We added up the scores and saw who won at the end of the week. The top three finishers ended up getting significant amounts of pro shop credit. uh, So that was really enjoyable. We're doing stuff like that all the time in Club TFE. So come check it out. It's content. It's perks in the pro shop. It's early entry to events. And also, you know that you're supporting the fried egg and you're helping us get year to year and continue to grow. So that's thefriedegg.com slash membership, Club TFE. Check it out. All right, we're back with Joseph to talk about storylines that we are tracking right now. Joseph, what is your storyline? My storyline for this week, I don't want to repeat one that I gave you last time, which has to do with players trying to get into the top 50 for the FedEx Uh Cup standings for next year. But that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. So players like Billy Horschel, who are like outside the top 100 FedEx Cup points, are they going to be able to qualify for designated events? But to, to kind of cheat here and maybe use a second one that I think is really the main storyline is Rory McIlroy withdrawing from the RBC Heritage this morning. And what does that mean? 
he definitely he could have an injury or something like that. It could be totally legit, or he could have something going on in his personal life that's that's totally private. But at the beginning of the year, we were told players could only skip one designated event, and this is now the second event that Rory McIlroy is skipping. So again, there could be a, a number of reasons for why he's doing it, but it it introduces some questions around the PGA Tour's ability to build a schedule and to build a system that provides the proper incentives. I think this is another example of that, where if the penalty is missing out a little bit on his player impact program funds, which that might be the penalty here, then why do we have the player impact program? Something that I've already, like I've been a vocal opponent of this from the beginning, but if that's not working, if that's not providing the proper incentive, like we got to re-examine some things here. So I do think it's notable that he withdrew from the RBC Heritage, the second designated event that he's missing this year. Um, Any reaction to that, Garrett? I mean, Rory is the guy who, in that last episode of Full Swing, was saying, we've all gotten a little soft. Every other kind of athlete has to show up to certain events. Why shouldn't golfers have to do the same? And now here he is missing two designated events. Now, I don't know the reason that he's missing the heritage this week. I'm sure that there is some legitimate explanation for it, but we haven't heard it yet. And the explanation for missing Kapalua wasn't that he was physically unable. It was just that he didn't want to play that event. That's not one of the events that he likes to play. I wonder if it's the same with the heritage because that golf course at face value would not seem to suit his game very well. And so if that's the reason that he just doesn't want to play the event, then fine. But I think it demonstrates how difficult it's going to be to get players to show up to these designated events in the way that the PGA Tour is saying that they will. The whole difference with the designated events is supposed to be that we can predict who's going to play in them. But it seems to me that those incentives just aren't really working already this year. Next year, the incentives are going to be even lighter. How are these going to be different from WGCs where, yes, a lot of top players showed up for those. We could rely on a really strong field, but we couldn't rely on the same players showing up to every WGC because even if the purses were big, even if the field was small, then if players wanted to skip the WGC, then they would for whatever reason that they wanted to skip it. Jordan Spieth was also talking this week about how, man, I've played a lot of golf recently. I played a lot of golf leading up to the Masters, and I think it might have hurt me this week. I think that players are going to be looking at that stuff and picking and choosing the designated events that they play in, and that's going to take away a big part of this program's appeal, to me at least. I don't know. Would you agree with that? Totally, and... I'm going to be a broken record here, but I don't care. The way to do this is to incentivize them naturally. No forced incentives. Don't stipulate they have to show up certain places. You have to have a special tour championship, and the only way to qualify has to be through the designated events. If the tour championship becomes prestigious enough, they'll want to show up at the designated events, and that's how you create this incentive structure. And some of the counter-arguments to it, like, I have responses to those, right? Like you can separate the concept of qualifying for the PJ Tour status versus playing in the Tour Championship. Like I don't think it should be that there should be 30 players in the Tour Championship, but part of the reason it is is because finishing in the top 30 comes with some other benefits, like qualifying for a certain number of events the next year, getting into Augusta. Like I think we need to decouple what qualifying on Tour means from what 
participating in the season long championship means same uh-huh. thing for the player impact program, right? Like it's, it's clearly not working if Rory doesn't care that much enough to participate in the events that he, he's willing to take a little bit of a penalty. All right. What's yeah. the solution to that? I think, I think the solution is an all-star weekend. That's 50% fan vote, 50% performance based. Now, Tiger Woods will play will play in it because he'll get the fan vote and it incentivizes engagement the same way that the player impact program is trying to incentivize engagement. And another a player like Tom Hoagie or Kurt Kitayama, who's having a really good year, but maybe wouldn't win the fan vote. That's how they would get into the All-Star Weekend and do some kind of skills challenge. Like I just think there are more elegant solutions to what the PGA Tour has put out. And these are the symptoms. Rory withdrawing this week is a symptom. They have to think through what the incentives are and what actually motivates these guys. I think that the prestige of an event like the Tour Championship, if it were a proper Tour Championship, would be a great incentive. You know what not a very good incentive for most of the top players is? Is money, <laughs> you know, is purse money that they're not guaranteed necessarily. And so, yeah, this has to be thought through for sure because we're already seeing it kind of come apart at the seams. And if we can't rely on the top players showing up to these events, what's the point? And to that point, they're they're kind of uh, framing, branding 2023 as a bridge year. I'm just going to say it now. I already see the same issues in 2024. And I know you've yeah. also voiced those, Garrett, like why show up to some designated events versus a non-designated event. Those issues are going to persist into 2024. It's because they have failed to build the proper infrastructure. So we will see how it goes. What's your storyline for this week, Garrett? Well, I'm going to keep mine brief because I think that is probably the most important one for people to focus on. But I'm just wondering if Liv does gain a little bit of momentum over the next few weeks. Obviously, they had a few players have really good showings at the Masters. I think that whether that matters is going to be proven in the long run. I'm not sure that it definitely will. But one thing that is coming up is the event in Australia. It's at an excellent golf course or what appears to be an excellent golf course in the Grange. It's in Adelaide, a, a real city. You know, it's not it's not out at one of these kind of uh, random venues in the middle of nowhere that people aren't going to be able to get to. There's probably going to be a nice big crowd there. And I could imagine it being a very successful event. And so if Liv is going to pick up a little bit of steam in the next couple of weeks, then I wonder whether this event in Adelaide is going to do it. Now, it starts on April 21st, goes through the 23rd, and so that's this month. And so if there is a little bit of positive momentum that Liv has from these great performances by Kepka, Mickelson, and Reed, then it seems like that could be maintained through the event in Adelaide. And perhaps we could see Liv turn a little bit of a corner here because like this year has been really, really bad for Liv. I think there's no other way to see it. And so, you know, I just wonder if that's going to appear to turn around a little bit over the next few weeks. Garrett, I have one question for you. I'll, I'll be brief. I thought it was a really interesting point. I think it was on a fried egg podcast that you did where you talked about how the schedule wasn't built particularly wisely for live this year, like um, not starting in the United States was a little yep. bit of a head scratcher, like starting at Mayakoba, which was really sleepy. Yes. But I guess my question to you would be, what's the most exciting live event this year? And is it not Australia? It seems to me like in theory, this would be the pre- most prestigious, the biggest live event. Am I correct about that? Yeah. 
I think that this one is going to have the most organic interest in the mm-hmm. location where it's held. I mean, looking at this schedule, my eyes immediately went to Australia and I thought like this could be a pretty big deal. If if this event really, really works and Australia rallies around Liv and it's a uh, hero, Greg Norman <laughs> and Cameron Smith, you know, it's, it just seems like this is a high potential market for this tour in a way that, you know, Oklahoma going to Oklahoma for an event that's going to be before the PGA championship or going back to Singapore. Or the Greenbrier. Yes, exactly. The Greenbrier. Who, who, who's going to really care about that? I think that going to Adelaide, going to this golf course, having the crowds that they're likely to have, this seems like the biggest moment for, for live in this calendar year. And if it works well, that could mean something. I'm not sure it's going to mean a lot, but it's something to, to keep an eye on. Totally agree. And if they moved like the season end finale to Australia, that wouldn't surprise me. That could be pretty cool. So um, I'm I'm with you. That's a great storyline that you picked up on. All right, Joseph. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. Uh, Everybody subscribe to the Finding the Edge newsletter. You're continuing to put out content on the Finding the Edge newsletter, as well as do stuff for the Fried Egg newsletter and our Club TFE membership and our website. So uh, thanks for all your good work, Joseph. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was produced and edited by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. If you would like to help us out a little bit, then leave a rating and review for the Fried Egg Podcast wherever you're listening to this. Those ratings and reviews really help us find new listeners and continue to expand what we're doing here. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.